Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and this is the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Today we're speaking with David Litwa, research fellow in biblical and early Christian studies at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. And we're going to be speaking about divinization or deification in the Hermetica. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. So you, sir, have a, in terms of deification, divinization, a ridiculously packed CV. So back in 2013, you came up with a book, like a kind of survey volume called Becoming Divine, an introduction to deification in Western culture, Cascade Books, uh, 2013. But more recently, you've come out with this book with the Oxford University Press, Desiring Divinity, Self-Deification in Ancient Jewish and Christian Mythmaking. And one more book I want to mention, which is very relevant to our current inquiry, is the wonderful Hermetica II, the excerpts of Stobias, Papyrus Fragments, and Ancient Testimonies in an English Translation, with Cambridge University Press, which is uh, 2018. So you've you've sort of done a sequel to Copenhaver's famous English translation of the Corpus Hermeticum. Not a sequel, but a, um, a completion of that project in a way. And we now have exactly. most everything in English. Exactly. Yeah, there were things left out of Copenhaver's translation, uh, most especially the Stobaean Hermetica. So Stobaeus being the early 5th century excerptor who's living in Macedonia, excerpts for his son, a massive work of literature, something like over 700 authors excerpted and he had access to Hermetica and also um, excerpted a very important set of treatises, one that we wouldn't otherwise have known about, one uh, called the Cori Cosmu, which deals with Isis addressing her son Horace. And yeah, the other Hermetica that I translate there are what's called, or what I'm calling the Oxford Hermetica and the Vienna Hermetica. And these are particular papyrus fragments that have been found very recently. And the other two Hermetica bodies of literature that I translate are fragments and testimonies. And in the volume, I expand the fragments and testimonies so that if you look at the critical, what's called the critical edition, I add a lot more texts so that one can see the full reception history, so to speak, all the way up to the Renaissance. So very, very useful for scholars and lay people who are interested in this stuff. It's very accessible. Um, I hope so. Yeah. So we have that book. We can then basically be citing the entire Hermetic corpus in English. But what I wonder is, before we even dive into the Hermetica, what is your take on the nature of this corpus? Um, not getting so much into whether there was a Hermetic movement or not, but in terms of a kind of theoretical background behind the text, do you think that there's a unity to the Hermetic writings? That beyond just the kind of dialogue form and the name of Hermes, that that there was to to some degree from everything from the Corpus Hermeticum texts to all the fragments we you've translated something recognizably that is one school of thought. 
I would have to say I'm definitely not a Unitarian on this re- regard. I think that the sole factor uniting this very diverse collection of texts is the ascription to Hermes Thrice Great himself. I don't see any overarching unity of theology or even topic, frankly. As far as I can see as a historian, the writers of these texts, and I agree that they, with Christian H. Bull, that many of them seem to have been disenfranchised Egyptian priests. They wrote on any number of topics in what we would call science and the humanities and attributed their lore to the great patron, the ultimate sage, Hermes Trismegistus. So there is, I don't see any overarching unity and I don't see that is even possible because the literature was produced, I think, over a period of at least 300 years. So in that, in that case, the distinction between the so-called philosophic hermetica and the so-called technical hermetica would be a completely an artifact of scholarship rather than reflecting a historical situation. Yeah, I definitely think that's becoming more and more agreed in scholarship that that's if we're going to use that distinction, and I don't think we should, but if we're going to use it, we recognize it as a secondary discourse kind of a distinction. But I think what is useful historically is to realize that the so-called technical hermetica was, in a sense, earlier than the, or much of it, I should say, was earlier than what is called the Philosophical Hermetica. I see the Philosophical Hermetica as emerging mostly in the late second, third, and fourth centuries. But texts had been ascribed to Hermes dealing with astrological matters mostly and alchemical matters much earlier, um, as far back, very likely, as the second century BCE that we can trace. So listeners may want to go back to our episodes on the origins of Hellenistic astrology, where we mention the Hermes text, this lost Ur manuscript of astrology ascribed to Hermes alongside the Petosiris and the Kepso literature and this sort of thing. Yes. So now that we've got a kind of feel for your take on these texts, let's talk about terms a little bit. What is deification? You've studied this a lot. You've studied this cross-traditionally. So you've studied it a lot in the sort of Abrahamic context, let's say, but kind of everywhere you can find it. And you're even bringing it into dialogue with modern discourses of transhumanism and this sort of thing. So what's the basic thing we're looking at when we look at deification in your um, way of seeing things? And then we can focus in on what's going on in the Hermetica. Well, I think in discussing deification, we need to look at the full breadth and variety. And the fact is that when ancient authors and many modern ones use that term, they mean extraordinarily different things. So it's important, yes, to look at and to distinguish things like hermetic deification, orphic deification, ruler worship, Jewish apocalyptic transformation into angelic or divine beings, 
all of this is in the mix. All of it is significantly different. And Christian authors essentially jump on the bandwagon and devise their own varieties of deification. And what essentially it means, if we can look at it like a basic grounding idea, is it is becoming a divine being, and a divine being is a being with immortality, deathlessness, and superhuman power. That is power which transcends any normal range of human ability. So with that basic definition, then you can, you can go out and see the different varieties because some thinkers are going to insist that, yeah, we become sort of mid-ranking beings, what we think of as angels or what the Greeks referred to as daimones. Some were more prepared to talk about absorption or mystical fusion with an ultimate God figure and an intellect, a vast intellect. Some were just prepared to talk about certain very temporary experiences that they had in visions where they expanded their minds or gained superhuman powers temporarily. We can look at, say, deification in what goes under the name of the Greek magical papyri. And there, there are rituals that you can use to gain power, and it's quite temporary. And you can ascend to heaven for a time and then come back down and your state, your moral and ontological state can, can change. So when we look particularly at uh, hermetic deification, I think that we even need to make, because the literature isn't unitary, we even need to make distinctions within that literature. So for instance, in the Coptic discourse on the 8th and 9th, we have a scenario where we have what I would call a ritual of self-deification where the teacher and the student are engaged in a kind of visionary quest and it's led through specific levels of heaven, the eighth level and the ninth level. And there's a kind of mystic fusion with a higher intellect um, but in the Corpus Hermeticum 1, you have a situation where the subject after death is going through the planets and drops off vices uh, at each particular planet. And this is called deification directly. And then in the other kinds of Hermetic writings, you have slightly different versions of that. So in the Kori Kazmu, you have an origin story where human intellects are essentially divine. They are mixtures, alchemical mixtures of divine breath and fire, and they are assigned to be cosmic governors, and they 
end up falling into bodies and all that they need to do to return to their higher state is live lives of order and virtue. And that's another way of deifying oneself. So yes, there's definitely different different ways to do it, even within the hermetic corpus. Right. So the, the last one you've mentioned strikes me as being very much in the thought world, Ketras Parabus, of Plato's statement in the Theaetetus. You assimilate yourself yes. to the divine through living a divine sort of life, and gradually you just become more and more divine as the less, as the, the non-divine parts of you kind of wither away or are sloughed off or whatever. While Right, and yeah, that statement in the Theaetetus that you become divine by becoming righteous uh, and wise the, div- the divinization through virtue is definitely something you also see in the Hermetica and specifically the Cori Cosmic, mm. definitely. But then you also have something that in the discourse of the 8th and the 9th, the Poimandres, and um, I would bring maybe um, Corpus Hermeticum 13 into the mix here as well, mm-hmm. where it seems like something more extraordinary or perhaps something more of a one-off transition moment occurs where you weren't yes. divine and now you are, right? Yes. Um, and I think, yeah, hermetic writings, if I can just add, it are very famous for questioning of what I would call a firm or strong boundary between the divine and the human. Um, her, hermetic writers, specifically in, in the Corpus Hermeticum 11, play around with a statement of Heraclitus that Gods are immortal humans, humans are mortal gods, and in the Asclepius, humans themselves can make gods, mm. um, and they themselves can rise above gods, apparently meaning astral gods and other lower daimonic beings. So absolutely, there. I think that's an important distinction between hermetic and, say, Christian versions of deification, and Christian versions of deification, you have a much firmer, solid boundary between human and divine, what I like to call the iron ceiling. You sort of, uh, you can go up only so far before you hit the iron ceiling. Right. And you can go no farther. Um, You don't really get that emphasis in the Hermetica at all. you do get yeah. certain Christians who seem to have wanted to think their way past the Iron Ceiling. Clement of Alexandria leaps to, to mind here. And perhaps this is, A, one of the reasons Clement was so circumspect in talking about his ideas about apocatastasis and sort of evol- evolution of the whole universe toward God, because it might have been um, a bit too uncomfortably un-Iron Ceiling-ish for the general milieu sure. he was working in. <laughs> and also perhaps is why even with that circumspection, he eventually gets not exactly anathematized, but sidelined by orthodoxy. They just, Clement, no, he's, he's dangerous. Like he sort of becomes forgotten. And although he's still alive and well in certain little strands of, of orthodoxy where he's highly regarded, but in a kind of special category, a bit like origin as well. Um, mm-hmm. could I- yeah, there's something I should mention about Clement and origin. If I can Please. just, um, because What's fascinating about the Hermetica, and what's fascinating, I should say, to me anyway, is in the reception history, 
we think that the literature emerges from Egypt, but Clement in origin appear to have zero contact with the literature. Or, to rephrase that, they never mention Hermes. So if they knew about Hermetic literature, and one might suspect that they did, living in Alexandria, it would be, I would be very skeptical of saying that they had no knowledge of it. But it's interesting that if they were under the influence of hermetic thought, that they do not mention it. And I think that's that's worth speculating about. Um, as a telling yes. silence. As a telling silence. Like why, a telling silence. Especially yes. because Clement is such an avid citer of this, that, and everything. You know, he's citing the Persians. Then here comes Plato, a bit of Anaxagoras, throw in some scripture, come with some Book of Enoch, First Enoch, and then boom, mixing it all up. But he never mentions Hermes. A, a very Right, loud which silence. is very striking because later on, you have an explosion of Christian interest in Hermes, right. but it it comes around the late fourth and fifth centuries where you get a, you start getting a lot of citations from Lactantius, who is in Asia Minor, modern Turkey at the time, and then an explosion of citations from uh, Cyril of Alexandria, who's a, fifth century bishop of the city, and he interacts as more or less a hostile witness, but his interaction with Hermes is very strong. And you can definitely tell that by his time, Hermes, you had to reckon with him if you were going to be intellectual at all. So apologetics, apologetic Christian writers need not only need to assimilate Plato, but at this late antique stage, they need to assimilate Hermes somehow into their discourse, whether as a sage who attests to the wisdom of Christianity in some way, or um, someone who learned from Moses, or whatever the case may be. You can't just brush yeah, them aside. There are two strategies there, two main strategies. One strategy taken by Augustine, which is an all-out, full frontal attack on Hermes, and specifically the Asclepius. But the other strategy, which is actually more common and much more prevalent in the, in the East, taken up by Cyril Lactantius and others, is to say basically that Hermes is Christian, by which I mean he has a Christian theology, and he foreshadows Christian theology even more clearly than Moses. And, and that's important for these thinkers because Hermes is pre, pre-Moses, and he has tremendous authority beginning in that fourth century period. So this is precisely the the tack that Ficino will then take in the Italian Renaissance when he revives these some part of these texts and tries to bring them into a new synthesis with Christianity. Once again, he's... Uh, he's Absolutely, yeah. He's not at all unique in that respect. Christians all throughout the Middle Ages had been appealing to Hermes is a forerunner of Christian theology and um, a pre-Moses sage, definitely. Let's get back to deification. If I were to ask you to kind of summarize the themes and ideas involved in deification across the Hermetica, 
how would you do it? Obviously, you're going to have to divide, subdivide and talk about individual texts to some degree. What is hermetic deification? Well, my approach, and my approach is just my approach, but as a historian, I think that we've got to divide up this literature and look at distinct levels. So if one wanted to study, if one wanted to write a book, for instance, on hermetic deification, one would have to look at the Corpus Hermeticum Treatise One or the Poimandres and write a chapter on that. And then one might look at the discourse on the eighth and ninth and relate it to Corpus Hermeticum 13. And then in another chapter, one might look at uh, the Cori Cosmu and uh, look at that. Because I, I do want to emphasize there are distinct versions of hermetic deification. In, in one version, um, it's about gaining virtue right here on earth about realizing your divine identity, that you are the breath and fire of God. And in another version, it's about a very temporary mystic ascent that is a kind of self-empowered vision of one's higher self in which one sees one's higher self in the great cosmic intellect. And then one enters an ecstatic state and then comes out of it changed and transformed, but still it's a temporary visionary situation. And then in another situation, it's a, it's a post-mortem ascent through lower cosmic levels in which you're giving up the vices that are associated with your body and your soul and, and rising to a level of the heavens where you exist as what I would, uh, and well, not what I would, but what I think hermetic writers would refer to at, at, as a daimonic level. You're at the level of an intermediary divine being, not the highest level of the divine intellect. Hmm. So there are various visions of it. Right. Um, postmortem divinization is actually something that even the most mainstream exoteric Christians are sort of semi-familiar with. They wouldn't call it divinization necessarily, but the idea that when you die, you leave this world. And if you've done the right stuff, you're going to be with God and you're going to be in a, in a tellingly, it's known as heaven, but you're going to be in, a, in another place where you're dwelling, in, you're, you're dwelling in this transfigured reality where you're basically a godlike being of some kind. I mean, G- Jesus in the, I think the three synoptics says words to the effect that no, no, no. After you die, you're like an angel. You're not male or female anymore. So that idea is just across the board, very familiar to Christians and uh, very familiar to yeah, Western culture, let's say. But the idea of a pre-mortem divinization is much more by the wayside in Western culture. Tractate 13 of the Corpus Hermeticum, where Hermes says, I've been given a new immortal body and you can't see it. It's not a body you see with your senses. So, like, here I am standing in front of you as Hermes. Maybe we could even, if we want to imaginatively say, here I am standing in front of you as a hermetic instructor in Egypt in the third century or whatever. You're my disciple. We're doing this kind of ritualized back and forth. I'm immortal. I have an immortal body. What's that all about, do you think? 
Well, I, I think there's a couple things to say there. Um, the hermetic literature, which strongly emphasizes human pre-existence, the, pre the pre-existence of what we might think of as the divine soul, um, or as the Kori Cosmo refers to it, as we emerge out of God's cauldron in which God put in elements from himself. That is his, uh, what, what in Greek is called pneuma or breath and fire. And he said over the, these substances, certain mystic formulas, which are known only to God and made a kind of alchemical mixture in which human souls having constituents of God were, came out as cosmic rulers. And the text specifically says that there were 60 different grades of soul, that they all came out from the same substance. But if you can think of sort of grade A and grade D milk, um, but there's actually 60 different grades. More like <laughs> refining petroleum, you know, everything from yes. naphtha down to diesel. <laughs> exactly. And in this text, it really reminds me a lot of origin. And again, origin would never, never cites uh, hermetic texts, but he definitely has a very strong vision in the on first principles of the pre-existence of souls. And I, I, he doesn't emphasize the divinity of the souls. The hermetic writers of the Cory Cosmos say specifically that in our pre-existent state, souls were daimones, which I translate as divinities, but it, it means these intermediate style kind of divinities that are very much like Christian angels. And they end up falling into bodies and realizing our backstory, so to speak, is very important in initiating that process of deification because deification for hermetic writers, and this I would say is generally true across the board. Okay. It's, it is a mode of self-realization. It is a mode of realizing oneself as a divine deathless being. The true self, if I can use that terminology, hmm. is deathless. And once that realization is made, whether in a mystic vision or through mythologizing about our pre-existent state, but once that realization is made, then one is set on track toward reachieving what was lost. Hmm. So, and this realization, is it called gnosis in the texts? Or is it sometimes called um, gnosis? Because we have gnosis coming in and out of hermetic texts. Sometimes it's highly privileged as a something really, really important. At other times, it seems to be used more in its normal context of just familiarity with something. And nous will be, or noesis will be much more highly um, privileged in some hermetic texts. I'm just wondering if this, if if you if you happen to remember yeah. off the top of your head, is this mythological knowledge or this knowledge of the story of how you got got to come here, which if you get it, will kind of save you from being stuck here? Is this ever termed definitely? Gnosis? Yeah, they, they definitely use gnosis. The the thing is, there's no technical terms when you look at the hermetic literature. There's an astounding variety of what you might call cognitive terms, terms mm -hmm. for cognitive self-realization. So yeah, gnosis, epinosis, knowing, katanoine, variants of all of these Greek words, which essentially, yeah, have to do with our own cognitive realization. 
Um, I, I think I, I like to translate the, the noesis as using uh, words related to imagination, because one of the things that really strikes me about hermetic literature, which would be different from, say, literature, other literature in Nagamati, sometimes called uh, Gnostic or Sethian literature, is that there's Hermetic writers share a kind of love of the cosmos. Mm. And they, um, well, I, I should say a, a love-hate relationship. But I would say predominantly when you look at the literature, it's it's very astounding to me anyway that going through the cosmos and learning about the cosmos, learning about how the stars work, imagining yourself in different areas, just imagining matter, matter itself in all its manifestations is part of, is, is part of this uh, general step toward realizing your higher identity. And you, in a sense, you, you bypass matter eventually, but you, it's very scientific. And I, I would imagine that these, priests who wrote the literature were doing what what we would call uh, science, really. Uh, they were interested in the scientific disciplines, which are no longer considered scientific disciplines, but that's a, a matter of judgment, like alchemy and astrology and things like that. They were, they were very patient observers of nature. Hmm. And that's that kind of knowledge, that kind of, that kind of, um, yeah, scientific learning was important to these people. Right. So by contrast, in the Sethian texts, you get, aside from the fact that there are some planetary archons who dwell in a roughly Hellenistic cosmos, you get none, none of that. It's it's all metaphysical well, mythology. No, I, I mean, I would say, like, if you read Michael Williams's work on rethinking Gnosticism, he, he, he can point to texts Sethian and other texts where there he can show that this cliche that so-called Gnostics were anti-cosmic is 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 a cliche. It's 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 not really it's not really right. But on the other hand, I think it's definitely when you contrast Sethian and Hermetic literature, Hermetic literature is really interested in things like matter, in things like stars, in things like what we would think of as like chemical procedures and in, is interested in like animals and other things that would fall under what we would think of as, as the biological sciences or as you know the broader disciplines of science as it was understood in the ancient world whereas yeah in the Sethian texts they're not um they want to definitely learn the names of the archons but they're they're they want to leave the world much quicker. The Hermetic writers leave the world, but they they go through it. They they don't they they refer to this cosmos, this world, as uh, a second deity or a third deity in some cases. It is, and that's that's very Platonic. That it, it is. They have a love of creation, if I can put it that way, hmm. which you wouldn't really. I, I think it's still safe to say you don't really see a love of creation in. Uh, Sethian texts. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. That's very illuminating. I think part of trying to understand late antique 
religious stroke philosophical texts, or let's say religious stroke philosophical stroke scientific, because all of these um, heuristic terms can lead us astray if we're trying to approach these texts mm-hmm. in, a, in a holistic and historicized way. And throw in magical as well, why not? Um, mm-hmm. They're all, all these ideas in this thought world are, are hugely shared across different traditions, but yet each tradition has its own special um, characteristics. And sometimes the best way of really getting your head around the characteristics is talking through it like you've just mm-hmm. done with the Hermetic text. So there's a kind of generality of approach, which is pro-cosmic, let's say. I mean, in our interview with Wouter Hanekraff, he takes a very strong stand on this. He says, you know, the, the old division of the two strands of hermetic thought that we find in Festugier, um, of the anti-cosmic pessimism versus the pro-cosmic um, approach, which must have represented two different kind of competing philosophical schools within hermetism. Hanukkah saying, no, 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 like if you really look at the texts without taking it as a given that there must be some Gnostic anti-cosmic pessimism in these texts before you start reading them, you realize that they are, yes, the noetic world is in some ways better than the cosmos, but the cosmos is good because the cosmos is a reflection of the noetic world. So it's fundamentally a kind of Platonist or Platonistic optimistic cosmos and and quite optimistic and about being embodied. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. And, and to return to one of your earlier questions about different kinds of bodies, I, I think in the Hermetic texts, definitely you see a kind of divinization of matter when in the Asclepius, it refers to God making. It, it appears to be referring to the ceremonies that invested statues of gods with a kind of divine element that essentially animated them and made them capable of responses. And when the hermetic uh, soul passes through the heavens, the soul, I do, I think they take a, a essentially what might be thought of as a stoic line where the soul is a kind of fire. It's not, it's not a completely Platonist ideal of utter incorporeality. They really do imagine uh, a kind of breath and fire. And that's the same language that appears in the Kori Kosmu. The soul is divine, but it's a substance. It's divine breath and divine fire hmm. mixed with this divine formula in a kind of alchemical combination. Um which puts me in mind of the Chaldean oracles. But again, I would say the Chaldean oracles is the more Platonist side of this. You still have fire. In fact, the noetic world, the, which for a, a school Platonist is immaterial by definition, right? Or I should say non-bodied by definition, because you can have mm-hmm. noetic matter as in Plotinus. But it's not, there are no bodies there in the traditional mm-hmm. sense. Um is described as the the you know sort of realm of fire in the Chaldean oracles, and fire mm. noetic fire is everywhere in the oracles, and you have to become fire. You have to become more and more on fire as you ascend higher and higher in the in the scheme of things. But again, precisely, but but quite different, I think, from this Hermetic mm-hmm. perspective. And I wonder how much of this is just the, the Egyptian vibe, you know, how much there was a kind of call it a zeitgeist around in in Egypt in late antiquity that had a very, because I, I can't help but see some 
sort of nebulous and hard to pin down, but very interesting commonalities across thinkers from ranging from the Hermetic authors to Clement and Origen, and I have to say even Plotinus in some ways, although Plotinus is kind of a freak. He's a breakaway from a lot. He's, he's sort of kicking against his era in a lot of ways in his thought. Well, I do think I, I, I'm of the opinion that there's much more fruit to be picked on the Egyptian background of the Hermetica. And I do, again, I, I do agree with Christian Wool that the literature seems to be written by what might be thought of as, as Hellenized Egyptian priests who have been disenfranchised because in the third century there were disasters which resulted in defunding of temples. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for uh, a job, so to speak, like many academics today. Um, and they end up they end up essentially trying to gather around themselves. Um, they, they, they try to use the social capital of Egypt and of their role as philosopher priests to gather around them um, probably small circles of disciples in which they present what they take to be absolutely Egyptian lore. And that's absolutely important to, to recognize that if we remember Fastigier, and I'm not sure how much your listeners have, have known about that, but he, he wants to present this literature as essentially as essentially Greek. But even if he's even if he was right, and I don't think he's right, but even if he was, it has you have to take into account the insider fancy term, emic perspective of the writers themselves. And from their perspective, all of the Hermetic literature is Egyptian 100% without a doubt Egyptian. So that's always important to keep in mind. That's a really good reminder. Thank you for that. We see this as well. I mean, if you look at Clement in the Thromates, he wants to say that all literature is, is basically Hebrew, you know, um, mm-hmm. and, there, and and you have to understand everything he's doing. I think from that perspective. So these these constructions of identity in antiquity do not follow the same lines that they do for us moderns, where we we tend to talk about things like Greek philosophy as though everyone who wrote in Greek was a Greek, uh, and that's just right. absurd. David Litwa, thank you so much for talking to us. Before we end this episode, I'd love to go back to many many things, but let's talk about statues. Maybe, maybe paradoxically, I find the visionary ascent to the divine mind and deification that way kind of easier to get my head around than the adoption of a nonsensible divine body, immortal body, that we find in, in certain texts in the Hermetica. And I wonder if statue, if the ensouling of statues, the animating of statues, is, is maybe a key to this. Do you think... Perhaps something similar is envisioned. Are the ideas somehow related? The idea of gaining immortality while you're walking around in 2nd, 3rd, 4th century Egypt and being like, yeah, there's something different about you today. Well, that's because I have an immortal body now. I've, I've become immortalized. And this drawing down of statues, which as we are drawing down of entities into statues. As we know, this is a very, very old Egyptian temple practice, which has been transformed and now has become this thing loosely known as telestike. And I've probably had lots of um, different practices associated with it in different parts of, say, the Eastern Empire. 
but had something in common. You're, you're taking a, a, a dead statue and making it alive. Is there some link here? Well, it's, a, it's always a, a good reminder of how concrete these people were thinking in terms of bodies. And the particular thing about statues is the way that native Egyptians would approach statues of deities, they would approach them as living beings and rightly so. To them, they were alive. And when you look at the material of the statues and things like gold and, and silver and particular kinds of stone that never decays such that we can go to museums today and find these statues undecayed, looking pretty much as they did thousands of years ago in some cases. I think that at least it's a good reminder to us when we're conceiving of the immortal body to think in those very same concrete terms that for some of the hermetic writers, at least, they perceive their true selves as a mixture, a very fine, indescribably complex mixture of divine breath and fire. And whether they viewed that as a visible or not, I tend to think that they that probably was visible on, in some regard. They, they were thinking extremely concretely. And when you think of thought, thought itself and our ability to imagine and all these cognitive terms that they're using. It's very much thinking like analogously to we, as we do today, that the brain is actually chemicals in the brain are the thoughts. I think for these people, yeah, their true self is that divine fire that courses through their very bodies and raises up their thoughts to higher and higher levels. I think for them, that divine body, that true self is already there. It's very material as I read it. And it is essentially what, what we think of as flesh is a kind of, if I'm reading the Kori Cosmu, it's a kind of highly degraded form like uh, of what our true selves actually are, which is this light substance. It's a substance as, as quick as thought, but it's not immaterial. It is something indescribably wonderful and glorious, but it's real and concrete. And I think you can see it, at least in your mind's eye anyway. Right. So a material approach, but not matter as modern physics knows it. Well, that's, a, that's actually a, a good question, because I think even in modern physics, there is a sense that matter undergoes an infinite number of changes. But if, if we think in terms of like simplistic chemistry and the elements of the periodic table, if we had an, an element of gold or something like that, I, I think we could think of, yeah, I, I think that that element itself as an element is deathless. I mean, unless you do something to it, uh, add an electron or a neutron or a proton, it will remain gold. I mean, so I think both in terms of modern and ancient physics, there's a deep sense that, yes, matter can change, but there are certain basal forms of matter 
that are more divine, by which I mean more deathless than other forms of matter. And part of this understanding of deification is transitioning to those more deathless forms of matter, if I can put it that way. Yeah. We couldn't do better than that for a, a point to finish on. So I'll thank you again, David Litwa, and uh, thank you. Stay esoteric.